Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Derek, thanks so much for making the time to come on the show. Thanks for having me on, Sean. Really appreciate it. Excited to be here. Excited to have you as well and, and pick your brain all about, you know, your, your, your story and the philosophies that you have around investing, of course. And I, I guess the first question that I want to kind of dig into is how, how is a, how is someone that studied liberal arts um, and toured around as a professional musician now deep entrenched into, you know, a, a very successful investor in, you know, in the venture capital world, in, in, the, in the heaps of technology and some of the advanced uh, movements that we have? Yeah, yeah, it's certainly not the most linear path, but um, happy, to, happy to share my own journey anyway. I'm sure others might relate to parts of it. But, um, you know, I am, um, I, so I, I grew up with a, my professor is a, my uh, band teacher, uh, music director of middle school. And so I had him as a teacher in middle school. And, uh, and through that experience and, and throughout my entire childhood, music was a really important part of my own identity and personality and what gave me energy and was a very uh, uh, effective pressure relief valve for me when I needed to decompress and, and uh, relax and kind of get grounded. So I've used music throughout my entire life through today in that way. Mm. And I get a lot of uh, energy from that. Um, and so I, you know, going through college, I had no intention of getting into business. I, you know, I, my family wasn't involved in finance in any form or fashion. And so, you know, coming from, um, my own family and, and not being aware of wall street and venture capital and all the rest of it, I came from this town called Fresno. It's in the central Valley and, um, you know, very ag- agricultural based economy there. And so I, I was very far removed from, from wall street and, and what that world was like. And so when I was in college, um, that was really the first exposure I had to different career paths in finance, venture capital, private equity, investment banking, all the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the buzzy jobs you hear about now in the media, that that was the first time I had exposure to people who kind of knew what those fields are even about. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so, um, I kind of, you know, came across that world largely for a very pragmatic reason, uh, which was in college, you know, my intention was very much to graduate and then uh, move out to LA with my band and try to make it as a professional musician. And so that was our intent. We um, were recording records in a, in a studio at college in the basement of some frat house. Um, we're trying to make a go at it. And that was our, that was our dream. That's what we we're going to do. And, um, and it was heading into senior year when people started getting jobs and, and finding their next landing spot post-college when, um, the reality of how much student debt I had kind of dawned on me because my parents and I had a conversation and I was like, wow, like I've accrued a lot of debt over the past four years here. And, um, and, you know, I gotta, I gotta find a way to pay this off. And so, um, that was really the, the aha moment to me, which is like, well, you know, music is a, is a real passion of mine, but before I can feel free to pursue that passion, I really need to take care of this uh, financial burden I put on myself and on my family. 
Um, and so how can I most effectively do that? And so for me, entering into Wall Street and, and investment banking right out of college was just a very pragmatic choice, which was, well, I'm a history major. I, I don't even know how to spell EBITDA, which is a financial term that a lot of finance people use, but you know, I, I knew nothing about it. But um, luckily, you know, as I was graduating college in 2004 into a bull market when investment banks were hiring a lot of people from Ivy League schools. And so I just, you know, was very lucky in that way. Yeah. And got hired at an investment bank um, that took a chance on me as a history major and thought, hey, we can train this person up. They can learn the skills on the job and then grow from there. And so I took that uh, opportunity to um, really just start paying down my debt. And so I lived in a very small apartment in New York, saving as much money as I could and just throwing throwing my checks toward the, the debt pay down for a number of years after college to get that cleared yeah. out. Well, you guys didn't make um, any money. And that's what that was my dream. No, no. So, well, we, we hoped to, but no, the, the band was, was never financially viable. So I think that <laughs> it never really is. The, is it? <laughs> no, I, you know, I wish it were, I wish it were, um, we, we did, you know, the, the, the biggest, um, money-making endeavor we had was less about getting paid for performing. We do that for, for free because we just enjoy doing it and it's a little college mm-hmm. band, but really, um, using the recording equipment we had in the studio, um, either inside the studio or taking it outdoors and recording bands at different venues, live venues. That's where we would kind of earn some money um, to help fund kind of band expenditures. But that, you know, that was the extent of it. It was never a big financial, uh, you know, endeavor for us, unfortunately. And, and the people that you used to play with, are, are you still in touch with them? Are they still playing? Are they in, are they in the music industry or do they all go off into Wall Street and, and finance as well? Yeah, you know it's funny. Um, all of them got got you know more serious jobs than uh, than being musicians, if you want to call it that. Uh, I guess less fun jobs, maybe another way to say it. But they're you know they're um, but not all in finance. There's some that went into education, some that went into um, finance, some that went into uh, medicine. So it's been a, a pretty wide spectrum of, uh, of post band opportunities. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully one day you guys can relive the uh, the good moments, right? But <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it's it's such a it's such a transition that you've had, right? From from music and and studying liberal arts without any sort of financial background. I understand there was some sort of a, a bull market, but you know what? H- how was it that you were able to number one convince these Wall Street firms to hire you, and also what were the things that you had to do outside of the job to make sure you have the learning curve that you needed to catch up with all the people that actually studied finance and that actually were, you know, training for this for the majority of their you know, university careers. Yeah, no, it's, it's, you're absolutely right. It was, it was a lift. So when I kind of got serious about trying to get a job in finance in senior college, um, I, I remember buying this book. It was probably like a 400 page book, no joke on how to use Microsoft Excel as like silly as that sounds. Like I had never opened a spreadsheet before in my life. And I was like, yeah. all right, <laughs> how do I use this thing called Excel? So I remember buying this 400 page book from Barnes and Noble and like going through page by page, building Excel like models and spreadsheets, just trying to teach myself. I remember that was a huge effort. And the other yeah. was buying finance, te- uh, getting finance textbooks from the library and just crank. Cause there was no like finance or business school uh, courses in my undergrad. It was all liberal arts. And so, I remember getting whatever finance books I could to kind of just cram over the course of a, of a, of a few months in preparation for some interviews. So I could at least, you know, um, talk the talk to some extent when being interviewed by these banks. 
and try to show them that while I was green and early in my journey, I was, you know, I could be a quick study and had energy and enthusiasm for, for diving in and figuring this stuff out and was very coachable and teachable. And so I think that's really, for me, what got me in the door there was just showing that I had energy and was very open to being coached and mentored and was excited about the prospect of learning something entirely new for me. Sure. Um, and so I think, you know, at the time I got energy off that, it was such a, an unknown field of study for me personally that um, I, I kind of thrived off just every day feeling like I could learn something new, learn something new that was very far outside my comfort zone after studying, mm -hmm. you know, European history in college. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And in, in some ways, right. You're, I mean, right now, really what you're doing is you're investing probably in a lot of first time founders that are very green, that probably had, you know, maybe a, a very different background or they didn't have the MBA credentials and they're maybe just don't have a lot of experience, but you've probably had to take a lot of bets as an investor. And, and I'm sure this experience of having someone take a bet on you uh, and, and the risks that come with that, I'm sure were very beneficial because you can now put yourself in the other person's shoe and you can see that person and what they're able to do just based on your previous experience. I think that's absolutely right, Sean. It's a good observation. And I think the, you know, it really does get down to that, that simple test of my own mind when I meet with an entrepreneur or a founder, and frankly, even when I'm interviewing people to join Capital G or any fund they've been a part of in the past, the, the biggest test for me in an interaction to say, is this somebody I want to work with and partner with for the long term here is, am I leaving the conversation with them like more energized or less energized? You know, for me, that's a really simple rule, but it, there's a true north around it, which is mm. I had this conversation with this person for 30 minutes, 60 minutes, four hours, whatever it might be, but am I leaving the room more energized and excited or less? And that tells me a lot of what I need to know about my uh, interest level in continuing that partnership and um, going forward, either in terms of backing an entrepreneur or, you know, hiring somebody and, and mentoring them within, within uh, my company. So I think that's for me a, a huge test. And, and I think that's frankly, probably a similar test that the folks at, uh, at Morgan Stanley had for me when they were talking to me back in 2004. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now you're right now, really what you're doing is you're betting on individuals and, and of course, some of the biggest ideas that are coming out in, you know, and impacting our society. And I really want to get into some of the mental frameworks and investing decisions that you've made throughout your career. Of course, you've, you've invested into some of the top companies, Airbnb, Uber, Snapchat. And I'm very curious, just based on your, your background, of course, you had financial background, but really it, it was such a unique transition for you coming in from liberal arts. And yeah, ultimately I want to know, you know, are there systems and kind of processes that you've developed over the years throughout investing in all these entrepreneurs and ideas that has helped you make higher quality decisions? Yeah, that's a good question. So, yeah, I think for me, um, I, I find that I'm most effective and work best in evaluating opportunities when I can do a lot of primary market research with end customers and just have a lot of conversations with folks using or touching the solution or the product and feeling very confident that I've hit bedrock and understanding what is so special and unique about the solution or the service that gets people not just um, satisfied with the offering, but enthusiastic about it and 
um, you know, turning into promoters of the offering. So if you have enough of these conversations with end customers of a given product or technology, you can very quickly figure out, okay, this is, there's something here that's quite special and unique versus the average, uh, the average business. And so, you know, what that looks like for me is like, you know, in the course of any given diligence, we're trying to understand an opportunity. You're, you're easily having 20, 40, 60 different, you know, conversations with customers going really deep and understanding, you know, their entire journey with that solution or that product. Like, how did you learn about it? Start there, right? Um, once you learned about it, how are you using it? What joy is it giving you? What are some of the issues with it? And, you know, would you want to promote this and recommend it to your friends and colleagues? And like really digging deep on those topics can uh, teach you a lot as an investor about, hey, there's something special here that's resonating in the market. There's going to be a real market pull for this offering now and in the future. And let's make sure we can do whatever we can to support this company um, to grow even faster by giving it more capital and more resources um, from, our, from our firm to help them scale even faster. And so I think that's certainly what you know, we saw back in, you know, the uh, 10 years ago now, when we were looking at Uber and Airbnb. Uh, that's what we've seen more recently with companies like Databricks um, uh, in the uh, data science space. And so it's really that that primary research and talking to a lot of customers, it gives me personally the most uh, conviction to, to lean in and, and back an opportunity. Got it. Got it. And, and of course, with Capital G, it's more of a growth stage for a meaning. It's a little bit later stage than, you know, the, the YCs, the Y Combinators of the world, which is, which is an accelerator where sometimes you just kind of have very, barely any revenue and you're really just betting on the founders. Were there particular skill sets that you had or that you've developed throughout your career that has leaned you towards more of the later stage companies where perhaps there's a little bit more data to work with, a little bit more data points, um, and, and there's some involvement of that versus you know, kind of in the earlier stages where you know, obviously it's a very different skill set. And, and, and yeah, I'm just curious to know based on your experience, what yeah. led you more into the later side? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think you're right. So there are certainly some, um, some investment firms that will specialize in kind of the pre-revenue businesses that are still, they've got a, a, you know, a, a handful of folks with an idea and they see a market opportunity. They don't have any customers yet, but they want to build that opportunity and get some early seed financing or angel investments to help them work through those ideas, iterate on it to bring it to market, right? And then start getting customers. And so, yeah, we, we certainly operate a little bit later than that, which is ideally once a company has found product market fit, that's when we'll typically come in uh, to the equation and try to help them uh, put fuel on the fire, so to speak. So it's like, great, you've nailed it. Now let's scale it, right? Let's, you've nailed the product. It makes sense to the market. You're getting some early feedback from customers that this is, will be a highly sought after service or solution. Now let us you know, give you a ton of capital to yeah. um, hire up a sales force to go sell it or to spend money on digital marketing to spread the word that this offering's out there. Let's like, you know, really go deep on and give you that capital early on so you can take advantage of the market opportunity you have now uh, in this in this special moment in time and, and, and scale your franchise much faster than you could uh, otherwise. And so that's where I think we come in. And I personally enjoy that phase of, of sort of the life cycle of a company because, to your point, Sean, that it is an area where you have a, a bit more data around how is the product working in the market? What do customers think about it? What are some of the gaps and opportunities for improvement on the solution or offering? 
Um, and then what are some of the opportunities for expanding it from a go-to-market perspective? Those are areas where we can then be a bit analytical and say, okay, let's leverage some of the pattern recognition we've seen from other companies that have gone from whatever, 5 million in revenue to, to billions of revenue. How, what steps did they take on their journey to get from 5 million to several billion of revenue? We've seen this movie before, like what worked well from scaling the product function, what worked well from scaling the go-to-market organization. We've, we, we've made mistakes at other places. We've had successes other, otherwise. Let's take some of those lessons learned and help you as an entrepreneur not make those same mistakes and give you a bit of coaching along the way to tell you what may work well or less well, given all the pattern recognition we have as investors. So that's, that's the, the most important job of an investor, in my view, is really being able to, to you know, get a lot of reps and cycles with a bunch of different companies who've had different journeys to, on, their, on their growth to multi-billion dollars of, of revenue and, and you know, helping coach our, our own CEOs and entrepreneurs when they're much earlier on around what that journey could look like and what their watch out should be. Um, Cause every company will be different. There's no cookie cutter approach to, that works in every company. But if you get enough of these, uh, enough of these uh, companies in your portfolio and you see enough of the course of your career, you can start to tease out some lessons to be learned that you can um, hopefully uh, serve up to your entrepreneurs that uh, as they, as they uh, progress in their own journey to help them along the way. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to know, because, you know, as you mentioned, there are patterns that you can follow amongst these companies just because you've seen so many of them. And I guess perhaps in the later stages, this may not apply so much, but, you know, there are great investors that talk about the contrarian rule, contrarian rule where oftentimes the best investments that you want to put and the best founders you want to put into are not the, generally the ones that fit into uh, uh, you know, a, a pattern or a success blueprint that you've seen before. Similar ideas like Airbnb and Uber, as I'm sure you, as you know, um, how much of that is, you know, following the blueprint versus knowing in your gut that some of the best ideas may not go through a typical path that you've seen before, uh, or is it a little bit different in the later stage where you can follow more of the blueprint because, you know, in the beginning, it's certainly contrarian, but after maybe, you know, series B or series C, you've just kind of seen it. And really at that point, it's about scaling. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, I think there's certainly no blueprint that works for every company. And I think that's the, uh, a mistake that a lot of people can make in our industry where they, they want to, you know, that we're all biased as, as, as humans to, look for patterns and, and look for the simple answer and simple solution and say, okay, here's the easy button. Let's push this and it'll all work just, you know, perfectly. Um, obviously that's, that's not how things really work. And so I think, um, there, but there is a temptation on the part of entrepreneurs on the part of investors and board members to say, Hey, you know, this particular playbook worked really well at this highly successful company. Let's just do that here and see what happens. And it's, it's a common refrain, um, in boardrooms because, you know, the reality is in the private markets, a lot of board members and successful investors will have had, you know, one or two or th maybe three very big successes the, over the course of their career. I mean, it's, it's a hard business, right? It's a, to have like yeah. wildly successful outcomes. There's, you know, you're, it's usually single digits, you know, for uh, many investors and, and board members around the table. And so it's always dangerous to extrapolate too much uh, when you're talking to any one person on, you know, just a handful of experiences that worked well. Um, and so I, I would say that um, if you're an entrepreneur, the, the way to receive that feedback and coaching from investors and board members is, you know, appreciate there's no one blueprint, 
But if you at least understand some of the patterns that have worked at other companies over the years, you can be a bit more informed around what, what are the, what's the full set of options I could consider for scaling my company. And I think that's the real value, right? If you, if you turn it away from, okay, these people have the answer for me, like, let's go do that as opposed to, Hey, these people can give you, give me a, a curated list or a menu of things that could work. And now let's have a healthy debate around why those may or may not work for my particular business or company. Mm. So I think that's the right framework to use when having, when, if you're an entrepreneur or talking to investors or other advisors in your network, um, as opposed to thinking that they're going to have the silver bullet for you. Right. Yeah. Ultimately you have to speak in the language of the, of the investors and try to make sure that you guys are aligned because you are going to work together for the long run. It's, it's ultimately a marriage that you're going into. So you want to be able to work together in that sense. Um, I'm, I'm curious right. to know, cause I think a lot of people that are listening may have just started their companies or perhaps they are in the process of starting it. So they're a little bit earlier stage, I would say is kind of the core audience that we're working with. And for the, for the ambitious person that eventually wants to raise money from investors like yourself and, and, you know, maybe in the earlier stages, but they're a first time founder, how can they get over the, you know, the, I guess the, the obstacles that generally come with in a green and inexperienced uh, founder, maybe they haven't started a company or maybe they just came from a very different background. Maybe they started liberal arts and they're trying to get into business. What are your advice to these first time founders to communicate to investors that can hopefully take them over the edge if they're on the fence? Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's, it, it comes back to, you know, there's, if you are able to demonstrate over the course of a conversation that you live and breathe this, solving this particular, one particular problem really, really well, and you've done a ton of research around what the market opportunity is, what customers want, what you'd be able to build in support of solving that problem and that pain point, and how you're going to go, you know, scale your business. If you've just come across as incredibly thoughtful and diligent in terms of, you know, having a ton of your own conversations with customers, prospective customers, with potential employees want to bring on board to help you build this company and get their feedback. And then, you know, build that, that vision around what the company could become 10 years from now. If you can really demonstrate a lot of energy against all those topics and demonstrate the fact that you've put in a ton of work um, really taking a critical eye to your business plan and, and feeling, um, you know, thinking through sort of the, the all the um, key strategic priorities that you would have to scale the company. I think if you can come across in that conversation, showing that you've done a ton of work against that and have a lot of energy um, to succeed, I think that'll go a long way toward getting investors comfortable with backing first-time founder. Um, yeah. I think that's, I think just the more homework to do, you better, uh, the, the better setup you'll be to succeed in those conversations. Yeah. And I've also heard that it's, it's often for, for founders, it's not often what you say, but it's the questions that you ask investors that really impress them. Have you been able to recollect some of the best questions or the most thoughtful questions that you've been asked by, you know, any entrepreneur that really left you a lasting impression about them? What are some of the thoughtful questions that entrepreneurs should be asking investors? Yeah. I think it's a good question. I, I think some of the more th- insightful questions that I've heard from entrepreneurs and founders are along the lines of, you know, what didn't work well at this wildly successful, you know, wildly successful company, ABC, what didn't work perfectly and what hiccups did they have along the way? Um, 
and what lessons le- were learned from that um, that helped the company get stronger down the, you know, in the future. And I think those, those sorts of questions, sort of understanding um, that show, and I think those are interesting questions because it shows the entrepreneurs have um, the awareness and maturity that not all companies are straight up and to the right, even the wildly successful ones. Every, every large successful company has had hiccups along the way and, and hit some bumps. And um, by showing that they're, they're aware of that and that they're curious to learn the lessons learned by that company when it hit those air pockets, um, I think shows a level of maturity around, okay, they, this, this entrepreneur I'm speaking with is also self-aware enough to know they will also have hiccups and experience that along the way. And sure. then they will also be their eyes wide open for understanding what lessons can I learn through this experience so to help them grow stronger um, in the future. And so I think just having that humility that, you know, not everything goes according to plan, but you're ready for it. And you're, you're, you're going to be um, eagerly awaiting to learn those lessons from those experiences to, to build the business back stronger. I think shows a lot of maturity and self-awareness around what the journey is likely to look like. Um, so I think, I think it's that, uh, that element around self-awareness and just being ready for bumps on the road and having the grit to get through it. That would, um, that leave me with um, a very positive impression of when I speak with entrepreneurs. Yeah, I think that's very important to emphasize because I think a kind of a green entrepreneur, someone that's just starting out that may not have a lot of experience, they want to overcompensate sometimes to share only the good news and share the share why it's going to be you know a billion dollar business. And of course, as investors that sees thousands of pitches and works with some of the best entrepreneurs, you know that some of that is BS and probably most of it is BS. And you know there's going to be a roller coaster ride along the way. And it's, it's ironic that, you know, oftentimes just being honest and sharing the, the bad news and just being transparent about the process gives you more, much more respect amongst the, uh, you know, the pool of some of the most experienced investors around. Yeah. And I think it, I mean, it's sort of a similar framework to how do you build a, a really strong interpersonal relationship with, you know, put aside the investor versus entrepreneur hat, but just two people, how do you yeah. build a really strong relationship with somebody I think it really comes back to that concept of showing vulnerability. Um, and if you don't have that ability to do that between two people, you're not going to get to a, a high trust relationship that can be really strong uh, for the long-term duration. Um, so, and you're right. This is a, if you're an early stage founder, you're picking an investor, you're, you're signing up for a 10 year plus relationship. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's going to have bumps along the way. And so I think the earlier on in that journey, you can show vulnerability and have open conversations around the good, bad, and the ugly, the better, because um, you know you, you want your investors to be on the same side of the table of, as you. Uh, you're a team working this together, and so you know get there sooner in terms of building that relationship. Right. I've heard. I don't know if this is true, but it is actually longer than the average marriage <laughs> that lasts. The United States. Yeah, so it's that. it's that's more than a marriage. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's, probably right. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably right. Marriage and a half. I don't know what it is. Right. Yeah. That's a different conversation over at the marriage system. But, <laughs> uh, let's stay on topic here. Um, so I got my last question around kind of the way you make decisions is, you know, it, ultimately for you as an investor, you are saying no to 99.9% of ideas because, uh, you know, particularly when it comes to VCs, the power law exists where you really need to double down on the ones that are working. You know, how have you trained your, um, I guess, the, the, your process and, and your, your, your decision-making flow to make sure that you can really spot out the key winners, knowing that there's going to be a power law here? And number two is how do you communicate, um, 
I guess, saying no in the most polite way possible. And I think this kind of applies to any busy person that wants to politely decline a offer or or, an invitation or some sort. Um, How have you kind of gone through that process? Right, right. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think, so to answer your second question first on on how do you politely decline, I I find the what I try to do for entrepreneurs I interact with when we're going to pass on an opportunity is don't just give them the no, but give them sort of the why behind it and be as transparent as possible around it. So oftentimes what I will have our team do is share the, the raw, you know, call notes or market research we've done with customers, with competitors, whatever it might be and saying, Hey, look, this is why we're, this is why we're passing. This is what we've heard unvarnished truth from the calls we've done some market research. So here's some free market research that, that we've done, take it for what it's worth, but this is sort of what's informing our thinking um, around why this isn't a great fit for us right now. And so that's sort of one part of it. And then the second part of it is give them feedback around what are the two or three things that, you know, I would want to see before uh, leaning into the next round, the next mm-hmm. financing opportunity. And so that way they have very specific, tangible feedback around, okay, if I can do these three things between now and my next financing event, I'll have a lot more investor interest in my business. So I think giving them a bit of a, of a list to say, hey, when you talk not just to me, but to other investors, you know, these are the three things I would focus on optimizing and proving out to really uh, you know, improve the valuation you're going to get in the next financing event. So that's sort of how I think about um, the, the, the feedback on, on when passing on opportunities. Um, and I do that because that's, if I were an entrepreneur, that's what I'd want to like, give me the unvarnished truth, like give me some coaching, like what, what can I do better? What did I not message well in this process? What are my customers saying? So I, I kind of put myself in their shoes. And, and for me anyway, that's what I would certainly want to hear if I were um, not getting uh, an investment uh, from a, a particular fund. Um, and then to your question, like, how do you, you know, double down on the winners, so to speak, to exploit this power law that you mentioned? It's a really good observation. That's certainly how the business works. Um, I'd say, you know, a couple of things. One is, you know, it, there's a temptation to think that, okay, if you look at VC or growth equity, you know, 20% of the deals return 80% plus of the profits for any given investment fund, there is this power law at play. But that's not always obvious at the time you write the initial check. You kind of think right. all of these deals are going to do phenomenally well. <laughs> sure, and then yeah, it's yeah. only over a number of years. You say, oh, okay, actually, these are going to way outperform. Right, right. And I knew I knew it was going to do this, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> no one's that, unfortunately, no one's that smart. Certainly not me. So yeah, that's yeah. sort of, but it, that's sort of the way the way it ends up working out. And I'd say, you know, that it's the surprising thing is that the ability to spot which companies are going to be breakout successes and deliver a 10x plus return. It, it's not obvious even a year into the deal sometimes or two years in, you know, like it, it can take a while for that, that company to mature to a level where it's ready to break out and really become a super returner. And, and that, that process from initial investment to, you know, hyperscale growth, there's a lot of data and signals that investors as part of as being an investor in the company, you'll be receiving over the, over time, over many quarters and years, That'll help inform, okay, should we lean in and try to invest more money in this business to further accelerate its growth or not? And, and that process is, is pretty tough to get right, actually, as an investor. Even though you're partnered with the company, you're seeing the data, it's still not blindingly obvious oftentimes. It, it can take a number of years to really um, understand that there's a real unlock here with this business and they need more capital quickly. And so I would say that um, and, and part of the challenge that you know, you'll have as an investor in the situations is, you know, 
by being invested in a company and having regular interaction with the, with the operating team there, you know about you know a large number of the warts on the business, like what's not working well, what are the challenges, what because you're trying to help the entrepreneurs and the executives, sure. you know, fix those issues. So you're you're very well aware of what's not quite perfect and what they could use support with, and that's that's a real honor to have as an investor because you can then lean in and help them on those issues as they scale. Um, but that being said, because of that knowledge. I think it's very easy for anyone investor to um, overweight the negatives on, for a current investment that they're already in because they know so much more about the warts versus a new investment that they're looking at where they may not have a full appreciation for all the warts yeah. in the company quite yet because they're not deeply ingrained with the team. So it's an interesting um, juxtaposition as, a, as an investor when you kind of are really tight with a management team, you know all the warts and issues. And so you have that in your mind around, okay, these are some of the challenges and risks in the business. And then the net, the new shiny object, the new company that you don't really have full appreciation yet for all those issues because you just see the the top line metrics and the growth and all the excitement. And so it's an interesting thing to 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 observe and a hard thing to get right as an investor um, when you're um, you know thinking through the how do you to your question, Sean, how do you double down on the winners and yeah. and uh, and strive for that power law? How do you avoid the bias? I mean, do you, is there specific questions that you ask yourself before you make that final push? or specific people that you go to, or, you know, uh, kind of a framework you go back to all the time, just so that you're thinking with the most clearest frame, uh, mental state possible. So that you're not going through, you know, what Charlie Munger calls kind of the, the, the 25 cognitive biases, right? Um, how do you go back to that? Yeah, totally. I, I go back to, you know, my own investment framework, uh, first and foremost. So sort of, first principles, you know, one, what is my view on the market here? Is this, how big can this market be and how quickly will it materialize? That's sort of bullet point one, like what, what proof points and evidence do I have against that? My hypothesis for the market size and and growth. Second is, you know, company quality, how well positioned is this company in that market to capture market share? So again, and that goes back to first principles around customer advocacy, customer love, willingness to spend, where what the trajectory is for um, the customer journey once they you know start a relationship with the, with the company. Third big bucket like economic model, like how well positioned is this company to generate attractive unit economics on their solution, and how is that scaling over time? And then the fourth big bucket would be team, like how well is this team executing? Are they making the moves they need to around up leveling talent, supplementing talent? Et cetera, as they kind of grow their organization and double and triple headcount. And so that's, those are sort of first principles. I look at those four bugs and say, okay, how am I feeling about, and I'll, I'll kind of describe a letter grade each one. Okay. I feel like this company is an A on the, on the market. They're kind of a B plus on company quality They're whatever. And I'll kind of go through each of those and, and, and evaluate that uh, versus what my assessment was, or my, my report card was at the time of the initial investment. And I'll try to keep track of that and document it over the years. So, you know, I keep some, I keep honest, uh, try to keep myself honest, right. Around what, what yeah. I'm learning over the years that change moves the grades up or down. So that's one piece of it. And then the second piece that is really valuable for me is, you know, that's the benefit of working with great partners at capital G at my current firm, which is, you know, I can talk about some of the challenges my companies are having and some of the opportunities they have ahead of them and juxtapose that with, the companies that they're interacting with and, and the companies that they're talking to that maybe new investment opportunities to fund. And then we can kind of all juxtapose these opportunities, weigh them against one another. And that I find that quite helpful too, because the partners who aren't quite as close to my companies can also help, you know, 
uh, zoom out, zoom me out and give me a bit right. more perspective. Like, yes, I understand the words you're saying, but for context, you know, based on what I hear you say, this looks pretty interesting and pretty attractive. Like, I think you should be more risk on for these reasons. So that debate and push and pull is really helpful because it helps, you know, uh, helps you get out of your own way. So don't wrap yourself around the axle on all the issues you're worried about. Yeah. Particularly because once you have two or three years within the company and you know, the, the flaws and the weaknesses of the company and also the strength, you are also in the trenches along with the founder. And oftentimes the founders has that mind of just being in the trenches and Sometimes they forget to really take that high level God view of really seeing all of the elements around where they are. So that's really fascinating uh, that you mentioned. Just to end it off here, Derek, I, I want to kind of go through some of the future trends that you see within the venture capital world. Things are shifting so quickly. You're, you're, you're get, you got new technology that's constantly being introduced, new industries being formed. And of course, even within the VC industry, there are all of these different elements, right? You've got, you know, the, uh, particularly for the earlier stages, you've got these interesting like revenue-based uh, financing companies like pipe.com coming through or uh, the cap chase is another one. Uh, and you've also got these like people starting syndicate funds, influencers and, you know, celebrities are now starting their own fund and trying to get into this world. Uh, and it seems like it's a lot of lot, maybe for the earlier stages, and I'm curious to know with this kind of new supply of various different capital forms from debt to equity, where do you see the shift going? Is, 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 and how is that going to uh, shift the entrepreneur from starting the businesses and how they start it and how they grow it? Yeah, no, it's a good question. It's certainly a, dynamic time within the capital markets, um, for sure. And I think entrepreneurs now have many more choices for which partners could help them scale their companies than they've ever had before. You've got the earlier stage uh, VC funds going later. You've got the later stage private equity and growth equity funds going earlier. You've got hedge funds, which typically right. trade in public yeah. securities going early to, to, to series A investments now. So the whole private markets are kind of melding into this one you know, blended asset class, so to speak. So you used to have all these distinct buckets, right? Early stage, mid-stage, late stage, private equity, hedge funds. And now I feel like they're all commingling into a big, just private market asset class, which I think is really interesting and fascinating and will bring a lot of changes. But I think on the, the positive side for entrepreneurs, it just means you have that many more choices now about who you want to pick to be your partner to scale. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, what'll be interesting to watch is that I think the platforms and organizations that can really you know, act as a center of gravity for just really exceptional talent, both operating talent and investing talent to help these companies scale. Because if you're an entrepreneur, you know, the last thing you care about is, well, what is this particular investment funds mandate? What are they trying to get out of this investment? Like, no, you just want is like, Hey, which, which people out there are best positioned to help me succeed in building my business. And I don't care if they, you know, um, uh, target a certain check size or their earlier or late stage. Like I just want the best people to help me scale my business. And so I think if you take that view, you know, again, customer first view, like first principles, then as an investment fund, you should be working really hard to build up the best network of advisors and operators and investors around you to in service of that mandate of like, let's just be best positioned to help entrepreneurs scale. And so, you know, within, Capital G, where Alphabet's independent growth fund, we spent a lot of time against that effort of like investing behind our own portfolio operations team, 
partnering with some of the smartest minds you can find both inside and outside of Alphabet to help our company scale both product and go-to-market initiatives to really in service of providing more than just capital, but also providing value add on top of that. And I think to your point, Sean, there's so much capital today in the private markets that if you as an investment fund don't have more than just capital to offer, you're not going to get exposure to the best entrepreneurs in, in technology. And so it's you know, if you want to compete and if you want to be at the table with the best, you know, teams and best companies in the world, you got to offer a lot more than just writing a check. And so I think that's what everybody is striving to do and sort of what we're pushing hard on at, at Capital G. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it's, I guess, for an entrepreneur, it really just comes back to just focus on your business. Uh, the, the fact that there is a amount of capital is, is just, uh, you know, on the upside and it's, 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 it's a benefit for you as the entrepreneur and the founder, but it ultimately, it, it's not really going to change how, you know, you run your business. You still ultimately have to build a successful business, focus on the customers, build a, build the right product. Um, this is probably not going to change too much for the day-to-day of an entrepreneur. Um, my last question for you is, Knowing that, uh, you know, the, based on the trends that you've seen today and, and the thousands of different business ideas and, and what you kind of see in the future, if you were to go back to your 25-year-old self, and let's say you had the, you know, the, 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 the kind of the experience and, and the knowledge that you have today, of course, um, what kind of business would you be starting today as a founder and why? Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. I, you know, I think for me, I I think the world of data science and machine learning is still in very, very early innings of becoming an enormous uh, transformative category for, for society and technology. So I think if, um, you know, we have the honor of partnering with companies like Databricks and companies like Data IQ in our portfolio that do nothing but this and focus on building out you know, solutions that can help companies really harness the power of their data um, to drive better insights off that data. And I think the reason I give you the answer of like trying to find a business that's, you know, making use of data and to drive insights is really important is because over the past 10 plus years, there's been such a proliferation of data throughout society, right? You see consumer companies, you see enterprise companies, both amassing huge war chests of data. Um, and now it's increasingly saying, this is great, we have all this data, but we don't have a whole lot of insights out of it. It's really hard to make sense of all this data. What are we going to do with it to actually true, uh, change and improve upon our decision-making day-to-day? How do we equip our employees and the front lines to make better decisions around with leveraging this enormous amount of data? And I think that's where the real pain is today because it takes so much time to get to insight that there's a real opportunity there for companies to come in and say, hey, We've got all this data. Great. We're going to reduce time to insight, make it actionable for you and give you some suggestions around what you may want to do as the next step to further improve you know, your own workflow, your own business optimization, whatever it might be. So I think that whole category is enormously attractive um, for that reason. And also because there's still a huge shortage of data scientists in the world. Like if you look at the labor gap for the data science category, it's enormous and it grows every year. There's, it's not closing, it's expanding. And so because of that gap and because of the continued growth of data and the continued need of companies to drive digital transformations to make use of the data and to get to insights, there's just a really nice opportunity there for companies to step in and, and, uh, and help further the cause. So that's, that's where I would personally have the most excitement. If I were to go back and be a 25-year-old, I would try to do something in that category. Got it. Got it. Beyond pursuing music, right? <laughs> 
And then playing a band on the side, right? <laughs> that's it. That's it. That's it. Well, that's a fascinating insight, Derek. Um, I, I really appreciate the the insights and the, and the knowledge and the wisdom that you provided throughout this conversation. Uh, I would certainly want to make sure that people can find you online. Wh- where is the best place to go? And, and also, is there a SoundCloud or some sort of YouTube video that you can share with back in your band days so people can just share to see the other side of you so it's not too serious i'll have to dig it up right exactly i'll have to (laughs) dig it up um yeah you can definitely definitely find me on on linkedin um derek and then last name is z-a-n-u-t-t-o and then uh Mm -hmm. my email is uh dzanuto at capital g.com but uh happy to chat with anyone anytime and uh thanks again sean for having me on really enjoyed the conversation i really appreciate it derek and thanks so much for guys for tuning in and uh we'll see you guys next week Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.